give me an email that recruits a millennial for a tier two university in the Midwest in Shakespearean English. Like no one would care about that use case. But for whatever reason, they are counted. And by the way, give me a blog post version and give me the um, Twitter version. That is the thing that really impressed me. Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketer's Guide to ChatGPT and Generative AI, a special podcast series brought to you by Enrollify and Element 451 and hosted by Artis Kadu, founder and CEO of Element 451, and yours truly, Zach Buzicruz from Enrollify. Over the next four weeks, we're taking a deep dive into the past, the present, and the future of the role that artificial intelligence plays in higher education marketing and student recruitment. In episode one, you'll get a crash course on what ChatGPT is and why higher ed marketers and enrollment managers should care about this revolutionary tool. In episode two, you'll join Artis and I for a live brainstorm on how marketers and admissions professionals can use ChatGPT to generate innovative campaign ideas and to increase operational efficiency. In episode three, Artis and I are joined by JC Benia. Element board member and the chief data officer at Vayner Media for a conversation on the history of generative AI and how the broader advertising space is using AI to promote their products and services. And finally, in episode four, Artis and I are joined by Element's chief technology officer, Petar Georgievich, for a conversation on how Element is using AI to build one of the industry's most powerful and user-friendly CRMs on the market. All right, without further ado, Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketer's Guide to ChatGPT and Generative AI. All right, gentlemen, we are live with another episode of this special Enrollify and Element 451 podcast series, all on the robots taking over the world. Just kidding, just kidding. But we are we are, we are talking about artificial intelligence and how it relates to higher ed marketers and admissions folks. And we actually, uh, Artis and I, this is uh, episode three that we're we're together uh, having this conversation. And we we actually brought in a special guest, JC Benia. JC, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, my accent is not in Spanish. It's actually a, a bot that's been trained to give a Spanish accent. I have a flawless <laughs> accent. Zach, so good to see you. It's been a nanosecond. Uh, congrats on Parenthood. Artis, oh, thanks, my, fr- my friend, uh, I miss you. I'm so happy <laughs> to be here. <laughs> Same here. Yeah, well, I, I'm pumped for this conversation. And uh, again, we've if you're just joining us, there are two episodes that you should probably listen to before this episode. Uh, that said, uh, you're in for a treat here with with JC. You can always go back and listen to episodes one and two, where we really sort of give a, an overview of what ChatGPT is in particular. Uh, in episode two, we actually do some like live demos that you can watch on YouTube, where we're, artists and I are actually like... Uh, giving ChatGPT prompts and we're seeing how it responds. And it's like a really fun dynamic episode. So if, you, if you've heard of these things, but just really haven't taken the time to explore them or understand how they fit into your context, go ahead and listen to episodes one and two. In this episode, we're actually going to take a, a little bit of a step back and talk about some of the history here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, the reason we're excited to have JC on this episode is JC and artists both were, were having conversations about generative AI and the sort of like the, the infrastructure that ChatGPT is built on years and years ago, like long before any of us knew what ChatGPT or, or OpenAI even, even were. So JC, I'd love for you to just start by giving us sort of like a lay of the land around, and then maybe you could even just start by defining some of these terms for us, like generative AI, like what is that, right? Natural langu- language processing, what is that? And then like open AI, like is that is that just a platform? Is that a company? Just give us a crash course on some of these like buzzy terms that we've all heard. And then I wanna hear a little bit about like what it was like years ago when these conversations were, were just starting. Right. Um, Look, generative AI, it's a subfield within artificial intelligence that is trying to bring that angle of machine learning where the output hasn't been created yet, therefore Mm. it will be new, but the output, it's going to have these specific manifestations. It's either text, video, 
Um, it could be an image. It could also be code. Hmm. You can actually have Python, R, or whatever code you're interested in be generated by uh, generative AI. The schematics, amazing applications are coming to us and schematics. I like to have a 3D building given the schematic. It actually produces you know, rendering of how huh. a building that will be 20,000 stories, right? So think about an application of uh, artificial intelligence that is trying to generate output that is creative in nature, and it could have any of these uh, outputs. It all started, uh, I would say, in the 60s, in my opinion, when you started having decision trees. This idea that if condition one and B get met, I'm yeah. going to be doing this uh, output, uh, blow the whistle. If condition one and four are met, don't blow the whistle, actually just uh, sound the alarm. And all of a sudden, these permutations start evolving, mm -hmm. and you can take input that was text, or you can take input that was a little bit on structure. And then I would say, I would fast forward to early 2000s, big data comes in. And that's the biggest leap that I saw in this idea of what pre-generative AI could look like. And it's the emergence of unstructured data. What is structured data? It's a table. An Excel sheet is structured, right? It has rows and columns, and the columns have a name. But structured data doesn't have the schema of that structure. Like, for example, a picture. Hmm. I remember this stat on adventure really early on the biggest data used today is a picture and it was us taking pictures of food when it arrived and before we ate it and <laughs> how do you mine how do you analyze a picture when there's no columns that tells me this is where the uh you know the rice and the beans are at that will be my lunch very soon uh but basically the structure is removed and you need to have some type of way to analyze it so computers and algorithms are starting, starting to figure out how do we analyze things that are on structure. Huh. Then the part that it was fascinating back then, that would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I uh, remember when artists and I started doing predictive models. Mill millions of dollars, right? I exactly. know, right? Artists, I remember was, um, the, big, the largest data set was ImageNet, right? That's, that's the image that we're talking about. And it was um, human beings actually labeling all of these uh, images. It was you know coming from academia. And that was the basis for a lot of the visual um, uh, computer vision um, huh. algorithms that were happening at the time. So it's like, how do computers see? And then that's that started a lot of the uh, this unstructured uh, data processing. So what happened, it, I would say, in the early 2000s is that just the explosion of data, it becomes yeah. a thing. But the computational power just didn't allow it for us to benefit from this. In the and, past and, 10 years. Sorry, just, just, to, just to clarify to you, JC. So when you guys are talking about like the the compute power, that's basically just like what it takes for computers to make sense of what you're asking it to do or to, to make sense of the image. Or like I, that's another term that's been thrown around and th thrown around specifically yeah. in the context of chat GPT making like people are saying, wow, like you, there's so much compute power here. Like what is that? What, what does that actually mean? <laughs> and like, why, why is that significant? JC, maybe we want to kind of answer that in the in the sense of everything gets translated, everything gets transformed into um, uh, what we call just you know zeros and ones, but then ultimately into vectors or mathematical just numbers, right? So yeah. an image gets transformed into numbers, and then now you have to do math on those numbers. Mm -hmm. So the amount of math that you need to do um, is. It, it, there's a lot of math that you need to do on it, right? And it's for every single pixel, you need to do a lot of math on it. And now imagine larger and larger images and so on and so forth. So so the amount of compute that you need to do on that, that's that's kind of what we're talking about is that okay. the the data and every all of the words, everything gets transformed into numbers. And, and that's where all of these algorithms are doing their work on those numbers which is kind of the, the same layer and it doesn't matter if it's an image or it doesn't matter if it's text or and that's why you're seeing that. And so back in back in the early 2000s, what you were saying, JC, sorry to, to I mean, you, you can keep you can take it up from here. But back in the early 2000s, what you were saying is that the amount of time it would take to, to compute something like an image was just incredibly significant and therefore incredibly expensive versus how it you know what it might cost to to quote unquote compute to analyze that same image today. I would have met artists in a chat forum 
because uh, we have this international background, right? And that was connected via a modem that had these really strange sounds. And I would have taken a picture that was three, three megabytes and I would send it to him where I'm actually, I don't know, having a pizza in New York City. That picture would have taken, I don't know, 54 seconds to go from New York to wherever artist was in the world around that time. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. That, we cannot wait 57 seconds to actually see a picture, right? It goes instantaneously. And we're talking about now gigs of data. Hmm. So, and I like how Ardis is putting it. It's raw data, which is basically a ton of images or contents of raw information. But the analysis on it, that's where we've made tremendous progress. And it could be machine learning and AI, just throwing the math at it. And there's a third component of sending it back, the visualization, the application, all these um, orchestration was not fast, mm. hyper expensive. And in a way, in the past, I would say two years is where I've seen the democratization of technology so we can do this. Let me give you a yeah. reference in point. When artists and I started thinking about predictive modeling, and this is, I don't know, li literally early 2000s, the work was almost $100,000 to do a predictive model on enrollment. And today it's free. Mm. Mm. those predictive models are free. They're basically, you we build in an element and it's part of a module that you buy. That's how things have advanced. And by the way, back then it was static, one-off, and now, I don't know, element would retrain, I don't know, daily um, on this type of thing. So we're talking about speed um, and cost all coming together um, at us. So the only thing when you think about is the use cases. And mm. this is where generative AI has come in. The use cases right now are designing a footprint that has not uh, existed. Uh, what is the name of this um, actor? Um, Astro Kutcher? Ashton Kutcher, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, is, he, he puts it very nicely. What is this generative AI and what is AI, right? So ask for Google or a picture with me and my wife walking down in Europe. That picture has been taken. It finds it and gives it to me. Now, let's find a picture of Astern, JC, and Artis walking down in medieval, um, I don't know, Europe. <laughs> AI will do that picture for you. And yeah. that's the difference between huh. the technology and the compute time and all the things that we're talking about. That it, the nuance of what has not existed, it can be produced in a nanosecond at a cost that it's basically almost free. Hey guys, Zach here. I want to quickly interrupt this conversation to invite you to join me at Element 451's Engage Summit on June 27th and 28th in Raleigh, North Carolina. When it comes to the student experience, we know that you want to be a trusted guide from recruiting all the way to graduation. Well, the Engage Summit brings the best minds in higher ed together to give you the strategy and tools that you need to create a cohesive student experience from start to finish. Explore the latest technologies, increase your skill set, and gain insight into today's students to deliver the most powerful and personalized digital engagement experience every step of the way. This is not your standard EdTech user conference. This is a dynamic, inspirational, and empowering event for all higher ed marketers and admissions professionals. I'll be presenting at this year's event along with some of your favorite higher ed LinkedIn and Twitter follows. You can learn more about this event and register for it at engage.element451.com. Oh, and you can get $50 off your registration when you use the discount code Enrollify50. That's Enrollify50 at checkout. So go ahead, check it out, RSVP at engage.element451.com. Looking forward to seeing you all there. So JC, taking this back to some of our, you know, because ChatGPT is based on like the foundational work that's done there is around natural language processing, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you, you're working with text, you're working with, you know, large, massive text. So can you just describe what NLP is and kind of some of the earlier um, manifestations of how NLP, um, some of the work done specifically, if you, um, some of the work done around evolution on how to manage NLP with natural AI networks, for example, some of the work that Jan LeCun um, was, <laughs> was doing with convolutional networks. So we're, we're going a little bit back right now, but if you want <laughs> some of that history, I think this is really interesting. 
for all of you nerds here um, listening, artists is just name dropping because John Lacuna, an NYU uh, faculty member, now head of AI at, uh, at Meta, it's one of our heroes. Uh, huh. And for all of you listening, NLP, natural language processing, it is not sentiment analysis. When someone comes and tells you, we're going to do sentiment analysis on this post, this is 1980s technologies. <laughs> so really, <laughs> really, we're thinking about something totally different. So what was it? Text mining is kind of this idea of counting words. And that was what we were able to do. It was really hard to start thinking about how many times is the word, uh, how many times am I using the word N today, right? So, if, and you will count it. It's too many times, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, we can come and do those counts, right? And you do distribution of these words are the most frequent ones. Now let's get fancy here. We're going to be creating counts of words that are conjugated. And this is what stemming and um, techniques get introduced. And you use these things of tokenization that a word now is a token. So for example, the word run, runs, and ran is the same word, is the action of running, but it's presented in language in different scenarios, right? And by the way, let's even get it fancier. Let's misspell it. So mm. I mentioned it four <laughs> times. One is misspelled and three other ones are conjugated. I need to account for four. That's the next evolution. Counts and permutations of counts. But then you start seeing that words... Oh, one more thing that happens with this idea of text mining. Um, it's, well, run happy, run sad. So the context before and after, maybe do I analyze it together or not? Mm, right. Because mm. the relationship word, between words sure, matters. Right? Think yes. about the word New York. No, and York, two different words, but together it tells me a location and place and that will be meaningful. So mm. text mining starts trying to look at all these permutations. Then in, I don't know about, and the reason why I know this is I actually did my PhD on, on text, so somehow I need to, I remember some dates, but this idea of looking at dictionaries is that, all right, the word, word, it's positive. Obviously, word is probably neutral, but happy, satisfied, um, smile, have a happy connotation, and words, sad, um, uh, angry, mm. uh, disappointed, have a negative connotation. And you sure. count how many times the happy words came in, how many times they came out. That's sentiment analysis, and that was text mining, okay. that NLP. What okay. NLP allows us to do, and this is why chat GPT is so interesting, it, it adds the layer of semantics. Mm. Try to get me to say, ask a question in three words. I suck at it, at art, artists. I use my hands. I will give too many words. A computer needs to understand JC with the accent. <laughs> and that's what NLP started doing, right? The, the realization that JC is going to loop 17 times before he asks the question, do a mannerism, uh, and eventually the question is embedded there. Or that is the answer. Zach, you asked me something very clear because you're a master asking questions, and I just basically gave you 55 words <laughs> until I got to the No, to no, the but ends, right? Yeah, so yeah. that's what NLP starts to deal with. Yeah. And you start see, seeing the first layers of just basically understanding, understanding. And at that point, the challenge, kind of serving this to artists that I think is the most interesting, no UX sitting on top of it, which is how do you interact with these things? Yeah. Artists and I built our first chatbot as a prototype. And oh my gosh, it was using um, some type of Amazon technology back then. Um, and it was really hard to do the layers of how we connect these things and give you a user experience that is meaningful. Today, mm -hmm. ChatGPT is doing all these things that I just mentioned with the most sophisticated user experience that allows me to be me and um, remember, because that's the idea of memory. You can yeah. come back to ChatGPT and say, Answer the question, JC. Get to the point, and it will remember the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. No, and and like w w one of the things that I think th this is all super super interesting context, and like I, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of where we're at today in just a second. But one one last sort of like historical question here: during back in like the early two thousands, as all this technology was was coming out, as you guys were you know having these conversations with. Very very smart people like, and drinking what, a lot too. And drinking a lot. Like what what <laughs> what were the uh, like what were the what were the uh, practical applications of this that you all thought would like 
you know, you know would happen? Like, w- would you have thought that the way in which, you know, ChatGPT has sort of like hmm. taken over sort of like every news site, every social uh, network over the past, let's say, month here, w- was all of this very expected back then? Or like, what, what at what point in time did folks think that this technology, this like nascent technology would be accessible and usable to to the common man, right? I think one of the things that was interesting back then was the idea of search, right? So Google, obviously, Uh, you know, um, you search, but obviously words and how do you find images by asking it around words? So tags, taxonomy and tags were really important at the time. So how do you tagging stuff and then finding that? And then JC mentioned there's four words for run, but then what's the combination of those and how do you find images or how do you find pieces of text that are you know, surfacing and being very irrelevant. And, and kind of this, this idea of semantic search also was, was important at the time as well. So those are the manifestations is around like, how do we have this large corpus of information? How do we digest that? How do we, you know, summarize things? How do we get information that is so, so essentially kind of doing the, the menial tasks that computers are really good at. That's what kind of what we thought that things were going to come out of that we're going to automate the very menial things that computers are good at. Um, and, and then we would, you know, kind of take that and put more complex logic on top of it. I'm not surprised to see where he's at. Speed okay. compute. Yeah. But, um, yeah. That didn't surprise me. It was just, I know there's way, way smarter people than me, so they will figure it out. Um, I'm a little surprised they came last year. Maybe I would have given it a few more years. The thing that really surprised me is how they thought about the flexibility in use cases. And let me elaborate because from my technical domain, you know, you need training data, right? And I would basically design a mod, something that would, it's too constrained. I would never thought about um, writing. Just throw everything at it and then. Right, exactly. Yeah. Writing, <laughs> writing a, give me an email that recruits a millennial for a, Tier two university in the Midwest in Shakespearean mm. English. I'm mm. like, no one would care about that use case. But yeah. for whatever reason, they accounted. And by the way, give me a blog post version and give me the um, Twitter version. Yeah. <laughs> that is the thing that really impressed me. That thinking for any possible use case, how you start thinking about your engineering, machine learning, AI process, it's, it's very fascinating because, again, playing with these technologies. I've introduced ChatGPT um, in class as what I call it, the, the tutor. And it's fascinating how you can just go at it yeah. and, and it plays with you. Whether yeah. it's true or not, whether it misses the boat here and there, that's beyond the point. Is the ability that it, the ability has to account for any use case. That's really mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I, I remember, yeah. I was thinking when you guys were talking about some of these initial use cases being... Uh, thought of at least back then uh, in in the context of search, right? And in, in the context of how do we, you know, how do we ensure that we can serve people up like the right kind of image that they're that they're looking for based off of like a little bit of context. I remember my, I, I think it was, um, I think it was like in middle school or whatever, my teacher one day walked in and she was like, hey guys, by the way, like if you want to search better on Google, there's this like magic tool that you should use. Uh, just add like a plus. So if you're looking for like, you know, <laughs> cats running or something like that, do cats plus running. And like, this was like, this was literally like the results were infinitely better than they were if you were to be like, you know, show me a picture of a cat running or something like that, right? Like it, even even in that like short period of time, just that changing up the search criteria a little bit helped Google better understand what I was actually looking for. Now, like per even it's last the original episode, prompts. it's the original prompts, right? And, and, and you know, per the episode that we did, uh, you know, uh, uh, last week here, um, when, when we're curating, uh, we're queuing up some of these prompts, we're being incredibly descriptive and saying, Hey, show me this thing. But, and to your, to your point, JC, we literally did that same use case. Hey, write, uh, write us an email. Oh, okay. Write us a tweet based off of the context in that email. Okay. Hey, write this same tweet based off of the context in this email, but write it as like a 17 year old would. We walked through all of that, uh, all of those steps and its ability to understand context at like a, a very granular level is is nothing short of impressive um 
And so I, I, I want to actually transition here, JC, because you, again, you are, are t teaching this stuff. Uh, you got your PhD in, in this stuff uh, or, you know, related stuff here. You're, you're a really smart dude. And, and beyond being, uh, you know, a key, Say that again. Say that. A, a key asset to, <laughs> to uh, the Element Board, you're also, I believe, the chief data officer at, at VaynerMedia, which is uh, Gary Vaynerchuk's agency, which a lot of the folks tuning in will, will know. And, and Vayner's, you know, seen as one of, if not like the best agencies in the world. And so I'm curious, you you have like a, you have insight into sort of how, you know, the top marketers, the top advertisers in the world are thinking about use cases for, for ChatGPT, for, for these AI tools. And I'd love you to just share anything that you can around questions you all are wrestling with or use cases you're considering uh, in, in sort of like the broader marketing and advertising landscape. I'll give you two uh, perspectives. First one, right? Yeah, it caught us all by surprise. Um, but the speed in which we're reacting to, in my opinion, is what many times separates what I do today to what I did for 20 years in higher education, right? And I'm thank you, Zach. Thank you, artists, for starting to lead and be thoughtful about bringing this. My expectation in, is in higher education, we're still going to be figuring out how to use it. Whereas today, we are basically have task forces, uh, investment, because we ought to use it. It all started, um, was it November, October, that ChatGPT came out yeah, with that tweet um, that um, an engineer says, what should I tell Elon Musk um, uh, about improvements on Twitter? Yeah. So ChatGPT gives him... 10 and he posted it and it became kind of mainstream. So I got a text from Gary, my boss. Um, can you guys jump into a conference call? So C-Suite jumped in. Learn this because this is what's going to take over Google tomorrow. Hey, all Zach here from Enrollify. If you like this podcast, chances are you'll like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. Our shows feature a selection of the industry's best as your hosts. Learn from Mickey Baines, Jeremy Tears, Jamie Hunt, Corinne Myers, Jamie Gleason, and many, many more. You can learn more about the Enrollify podcast network at podcasts.enrollify.org. Our shows help higher ed marketers and admissions professionals find their next big idea. Find yours at podcast.enrollify.org. I didn't make that connection. Uh, I didn't know what chat GPT was all about. So study up. So the first thing that is making us do is studying up. Um, I knew about generative AI academically, but I did not know anything about the, this, you know, um, GPT module, by the way, by the way, the one that we have on the current version of ChatGPT, it's version three, and I understand version four is what's available on Bing. And it has a Sydney application that is kind of confused and is fascinating. I don't know if you guys spoke about that, but it's no. just way, way more ahead of what we are experiencing today. I guess that's mm -hmm. my punchline. And the use cases are emerging, so we needed to catch up. So first thing is it's given to us, to learn it so we can apply it. And it's fascinating, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, everyone has an AI application that is interesting. Then let's bring this to the creative um, kind of marketing performance angle. All of you who are listening, who I believe have a passion for enrollment uh, uh, management and, and marketing and recruitment, need to know that what we do doesn't scale. There's one thing that is expensive and still very human focused is creative work. Mm. Give me a blog post that is meaningful to that, you know, 17 year old based on Boise, Idaho for liberal arts requires human power yeah. and do 17 variations of that. Oh my gosh, that human power all of a sudden is stretched to the end degree. And by the way, you cannot just sometimes do a blog post text you need to give it that image right and sometimes the image has to be moving and you know god forbid you use a super curated image in tiktok because the algo will not favor it it wants that tiktok specific type of thing so all of a sudden that one recruitment message for 17 year old zach uh in boise idaho it requires i don't know 57 hours of work now i'm just <laughs> inviting zach to an open house yeah that is yeah. not scalable 
So we know that the play here is on productivity. Please do not confuse good creative with productive creative, right? There's mm. home runs and there's this idea of creative that is worthy of Super Bowl things. Um, guys, we just did two, two Super Bowl ads. That is a monster in itself. That's not what <laughs> we're talking which, about. Which one was yours? Uh, Pepsi uh, with uh, Adam Sand, um, Ben Stiller and uh, Steve Martin. So That was a good one. Yeah, yeah I like that, that one a lot. So chat GPT, generative AI, in my opinion, doesn't touch that creative output. But there's 57 variations of content so I can have a successful event. The um, I need to have, you know, 17 variations on a campaign um, tomorrow and 17 the day after. That's where you start seeing generative AI to be a really interesting value proposition. Mm. Think about only the research phase. I need to come and present you, the client, the university XYZ. I'm now the creative marketing team with 17 concepts. By the way, isn't 17 as hyperbole? That's hard. Yeah. So literally you can go to chat GPT and get 17 ideas in 34 seconds just yeah. to start and then do full-blown creative once you actually have reduced all the hours that you need to generate 17 good ideas so you can then go and double tap double click into that one that is going to work so it starts looking in productivity very very differently the agility and the efficacy of productivity the amount it, uh the one of time it works, it takes to work. And I'll give you the last point that we're also seeing. I have this expression at work um, when I work with creative folk that I call creative luck. Um, a play on creative, uh, kind of dumb luck. Yeah. Creative luck is the thing. I've seen the most creative people around the world. Artists and I have been very blessed to work with amazing creative uh, people. Too close sometimes. <laughs> and um, you know that a good idea, sometimes you cannot replicate it. And these amazing, brilliant creators, they just have bad days or the conditions change and the cultural signal has moved. And also in that um, isn't cre awesome creative, it is not. So you need to sometimes just have things that don't work Mm. to find something right and scale it. So mm. a way that we're seeing this work really well for us is we will attempt 50 concepts to find the one that works so you can take it to the next level. And generative AI is just a volume machine for us because mm. we will know that creative lock, it's there. We just need to test it everywhere, small, so we can scale it and add momentum to it. Does that make sense? I was thinking that aligns really well with kind of what you guys do with, with chat GPT as you're going for smaller and smaller micro segments uh, in terms of your creative and social media being that, that main channel that, that you guys are very good at at Vayner. It's like having those smaller uh, creatives that are, or, or text or whatever that are kind of, you can do that, right? You can kind of put out a hundred different tweets or a hundred different TikTok creatives or a hundred different Instagram creatives and basically find the, uh, the, the segments that, that that will be resonating for, you know, you guys are really good at that. And I, I, I forget during our engage conference, I think, uh, Wanda, which is your chief creative officer there. Um, she was talking about this micro segments and, and this, um, right. uh, this idea of finding relevant, um, segments that you can target. Ultimately, I'm assuming we all want to get to a point where it can be a segment of one, right? So yeah. that's that's the ultimate idea, but that's kind of what comes to mind. My question to you, JC, is is very much aligned with that. Is like, you know, when when I think about a college or university brand, or really just any brand, brands oftentimes have to settle for like the positioning statements that are like the most good for the most number of people in their their target segment right meaning like it you kind of have to not go to the lowest common denominator but like you can't like when you think of about like a billboard right or even mm -hmm. like a, a a digital ad you only have so much real estate that you can play with right you only have so many words you can choose and the idea you know the best creatives think about okay who are we who are we trying to go at here okay we've got you know, 17 words, we'll just stick with the number 17, 17 words to play with here. What are the best 17 words 
for the greatest number of our customer segments. But what tools like this allow us to do, uh, as, as you and artists are, are talking about here, is like it allows us to say, hey, what if we could create something that's the best possible version just for this micro audience, right? This micro segment. And until these tools became available, no one in their right mind could justify this. No agency, no higher ed, you know, marketing team could it justify the time. But now we're living in a world where, wait a second, what if you could take your brand's positioning statements and what if you could customize them down to, you know, a segment of one? Correct. And I and, and I think that that's the power. And what what I think what's exciting is like this actually, I think for for the brand and creative folks actually means that you get to spend more time really thinking critically about like, okay, how should our brand be perceived by this particular audience or, or segment of one, right? And maybe one is too extreme, but let's just use another, let's st stick with extreme, but let's use 10, right? Like when you think about your student populations, what if you could make your brand relatable and accessible to 10 people in Boise, Idaho, right? That all go to, you know, the, the same school and uh, live in the same neighborhoods up until now, like that wasn't, that was not even close to being feasible. And right. now you actually can think critically about like, how do we want our brand to be perceived by these various audiences? And let's test 17 different positioning statements to the 10 kids in Boise, Idaho, and see which one resonates best with them. And so I'm curious, JC, like, like how, what are some practical use cases that you guys are, and again, you guys work with some of the world's leading brands, right? Which presumes that you have, maybe more resources than the average higher ed marketing shop uh, to, to play around with. But like, what are some things that you guys are testing and like, what are you learning from, from these tests? I'm going, I'm going to answer the question, but first I want to sit on emotion, please. Because the difference between many higher education brands and the ones I work with today is probably $300 million a, uh, a day on marketing and spending. It's ridiculous. The amount of money that we see having said wow. that, yeah. they're very similar. In the moment in time I want to go back to is uh, at NYU, we're a school of no boundaries. That was the brand, right? Uh, mm. Global community. Explain that to a 17-year-old. I remember our president then is basically holding the fort of the brand, untouchable, impeccable, tier one aspirational, that brand. Yeah. And that's the same thing for the Fortune 500 companies. <laughs> we need to understand, this is where Gary Vaynerchuk, it's been so good. A brand is built on social, meaning that the interpretation of the brand will change based on, you know, TikTok and what it allows you to do versus, you know, an ad in a subway station or a TV uh, ad that you're seeing while um, getting nachos in the Super Bowl, right? That's really, really complicated. So the applications that we're seeing there, it's we need to know that the brand is not an ultimate untouchable tier of goodness, but mm -hmm. it's contextualized to these small micro segments, segment of one. So how do you do that? You just basically test and learn volume, 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 volume until you find right. And when you, in, when you find right, you scale, you put everything on it. Planning specific. If you're a planner, we will actually have a mo modality where we do not spend all the money on the account. We, we actually hold the biggest investment until we find right. We will mm. we'll do maybe it's think about 40% is programmatic. Tons of experiments. Yeah. Tons of experiments. So it starts with planning. Leave money aside because you will find right and then you want to go all in. By the way, we're finding that it takes 36 hours to go from right to an actual big, you know, um, moment. So you have to work really, really fast, specifically because finding right is linked to culture. And all of a sudden, um, uh, disaster in Turkey takes place, an earthquake, and everyone is thinking about you know Turkey differently. So how did we message international students in that area? 36 hours later, if you didn't make your move, then it's too late. Mm. That's basically um, um, what I'm talking about. Second thing that I'm seeing in... This is something that I've, I'm voicing my peers. The developments of generative AI and image are not as sophisticated and they will come across a little cookie cutter. Mm, um, yeah. And it's really easy to detect that's AI, right? Uh, helping us with that graphic. Um, we've 
are building on capabilities for text because you you have this creative brief, right? So give me 17 variations, but I want it for TikTok, I want it for a blog post, I want it for an entry in a website that is actually an event, and I want it, you know, in green screen, whatever, right? So you start thinking about the application. So that channel uh, medium play, when you have a when you have found right, that's what we're finding your AI to be a fantastic partner. And learning how do you do the staging that this is development, this concept. You give this to a client uh, for uh, improvement and iteration. It's kind of where it's at. Literally think of generative AI as your intern um, that gives you data and you can basically recirculate in your process. Such great examples there. And I think I love the intern example. We've talked about, uh, artists talked about like the the co-pilot sort of analogy too, of like thinking about this tool as a, as a co-pilot, um, your best coworker, right? The testing component too, the, so many schools that I talk to, so many leaders at schools that I talk to admit that their teams just like don't have the bandwidth to do testing, right? Like it's like, it's hard enough to get one email written for the open house, let alone five versions of that email, right? And oftentimes people are running behind, they don't have the time to test five different versions of, you know, email one for their for their open house. And again, what's so exciting about the tools like this is like, it helps make all of that actually possible. You still need to, you still need to like, you know, do the work and, and prioritize it and decide that this is something that your institution is going to take seriously. But the man, the quote unquote manpower uh, is now compute power, right? To, to, to make these things happen. Um, yes. so, so in theory there, there, there's no excuse to not, to not really do testing and no excuse to not really do really good segmenting anymore. Thanks to, thanks to some of these tools. What would, what would you add to, to any of this artists? Well, I, I just want to hone in on that because the way that we're operating today and the way we're seeing a lot of our partners and schools operating today is they're building larger campaigns and they're building these things way in advance, right? So they have one year campaign and or mm. multi-month campaign that's going on. You're writing the content, you're, you're kind of deploying this campaign and you're not necessarily learning from it and changing that, you know, 36 hours later, it's basically set and done. And when you look at it, you go back and you say, oh, I want to compare how I'm doing against last year or last term or uh, but but that's not necessarily the reality of of kind of how um, the world is operating, right? So those decisions yeah. in the student's mind, they're not made over a, a six-month period. They're made in a very short period of time when you're delivering that content. And if you're not measuring that right then and there and changing to the next iteration or the next kind of interaction, it becomes really difficult to have a narrative that is cohesive, right? So the testing is not that you're testing content, but you're essentially changing the content based on prior actions on that, whatever that person has done in the context that they're in at that time. And this is something that JC and I, we've been kind of, it's been kind of the holy grail of all of the um, CRMs and all of the kind of marketing and, and kind of recruiting is is this idea of um, you know you have you you can understand behavior right and we do a lot of stuff in Element around behavior and doing modeling and machine learning around behavior um, to kind of bubble up it's like okay are they a lurker are they engaged or not but then the next phase it's like well how do I affect their next um, you know their next action how do I drive them towards their next action. And in order to do that, what we were missing before was exactly like the content. Somebody had to go in and, and write a, a hundred or 200 different variations because these decision trees, right? We didn't know where yeah. the person was going to be. But now it can be a lot easier to say, oh, have the machine write that, which makes it a lot better at having the, the most probability for that person doing the things that the, the next thing that you want them to do, because you actually are delivering to them very, very contextual um, uh, kind of content and, and actionable content as well. So and, I'm really excited take, about that part. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to take that a step further too, it's like, it also should help you weed out, right? Folks that aren't actually great fits for your, your offering. Meaning, Hey, if you're, if, if all this context is happening, like you can't, you, you don't ever have to wonder, uh, maybe we just like didn't personalize the experience enough for artists. And that's why exactly. he's not interested. Like exactly what this does is it takes that, that guesswork out. It's like, no, 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 this is, 
this is like exactly what artist is saying that he needs and wants and desires and all of his digital like footprints right indicate that this is this message is contextual he's just not interested in our offering that's okay let's you know exactly. remove him from the pipeline or whatever no no signal is signal i think jc you like to say that it's like if, if there is no <laughs> data that's data actually <laughs> Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I recommend everyone listening to it is to be very honest on the stage of the funnel that you are in. Mm. And, and I'm using marketing funnel, not enrollment funnel. If we're doing brand building at the very top. We, we've, we need to experiment and uh, we need to be driving message on brand. And who knows what that is, right? It's so difficult to do it. We actually have this concept called brand formants that is on brand building. You never have a call to action, but sometimes you do. And this is a thing itself. But at the bottom of the funnel, not to think about, you know, enrollment, but someone is making an action, whether that just yeah. the info session, you know, think about the journey, right? I'm just needing to come to... Come to a meeting. I need, I need you to talk to a faculty member. I need you to submit the form. This is where transactional copy is so interesting. And what I found, because this is what I did for many years, is that I jazzed up and romanticized so much, fill up this goddamn form, and, and I put <laughs> brand building. I just need you to do the form. So start thinking about what is it that I'm doing. I'm, I'm building a brand which has its own type of attributes, whereas I'm trying to do something that it's a call to action to move you forward, right? In that continuous engagement, very um, uh, kind of uh, marketing experience type of thing that we want to deploy, sometimes it's not as just up of romanticized as you need it. And clear messaging, I, I found, is sometimes these tools give you that angle, right? Uh, yeah. So pick, pick your use cases. Pick where you want this type of technology to come and help you. And I wouldn't be surprised if you can instrument it throughout all the initiatives, but yeah. um, know where you want it, right? Because it will be a yeah. different problem, a different type of in, uh, interrogation of data and uh, kind of copy generation, if you will. Yeah. Yep. No, this is uh, this is this is gold, uh, JC, and I'm I'm just super thankful for artists and I are thankful for for you and your time and and being on here. One last quick question, um, just because I can imagine the social posts or the DMs that we'll get of like, you guys didn't talk about any of the downsides of, of you know, chat GPT and, and AI and, and whatnot. Again, not to, not, to, not to end on sort of like a sour note here, but just what are, what are like a couple things that you would just encourage folks to, and you kind of were just touching on this, right? Um, but like any, anything else you would encourage folks to just be aware of or, or cognizant of as they start playing with these tools and finding ways to to work them into their uh, their enrollment marketing strategies. If you go into um, a production of content, copy or image, um, and you don't know the source, you could be sued. Right mm. now, there's some litigations that uh, someone says, you cannot just ask for an image in the artist's Kadui style, assuming the artist is a, is a, uh, is a painter. The technology will do it. But maybe artist doesn't want that. So he'll come and, you know, sue the platform because he doesn't want technology to replicate his style of artist. Do you draw? <laughs> I used to. Yeah. Right. Oh, you did. Wow. Man, that's amazing. Man, that's man cool. of multiple things. That's, so that's an important thing you need to know that there is. Yeah. There's a, right now a, com a conversation about copyrights and IP, right. um, which is important. Maybe you don't want to be so. Be careful how you ask, and don't be too greedy on or contemporary because it may be uh, it may be th uh, taking you into a loop. Yeah. Um, there's a second angle that I'm seeing, right? Is that you just take it at face value? Yeah. Um, just copy paste. <laughs> it's not perfect, right? Um, hey, give me the last. Here's a problem, right? What is the average debt of a household of four in America? Right, so now you have that data, and you're doing some research. Whatever, maybe it's wrong. Right, so make sure that you also have a system of checking because yeah. if you're referencing, you know, your sources could be wrong. Uh, I don't have a negative. I want to be very clear on this. I don't have a negative on 
machine taking over human. So if you want me to say something like that, I just don't believe in that because the world, yeah. uh, friends, the world needs help. Whereas too many of us and technology is only going to help us do things faster. And what I want us to technologies like this, it's so we can come and solve other problems as humans. Yeah. So don't expect me to say, oh, you know, technology and, you know, uh, machines taking over. That's we're not a negative here. We're technologists, so we're never going to yes. say that. Yes, of course. Of course, of course. Yeah. In good company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that th those are those are really important things to keep in mind. I, I love what you mentioned about the copyright thing, too, in particular, because one of the things like ChatGPT at, at this particular moment, like it's not citing like a, a source, right? So like right. when you are, when you're Googling something, at least what you can do is you can verify based off of the, the website that the content is hosted on. Like, all right, is this article from, you know, from a reputable source or is this some like blog that hasn't been updated in 17 years? Maybe I be, maybe I should be a little bit skeptical of like, of, of the stats on, on this particular uh, domain. Right. And you get some of that verification via, via search, Google search that you, that you don't at, the, at least at this juncture quite get from, from chat GPT. So that's another thing to just kind of be aware of and, and whatnot. But yeah, I am um, super thankful JC for, for your time uh, and artists for, for your time and for uh, element who is making this entire series possible. This, these are really important topics, really important conversations to be having. If you aren't already having these conversations with your team, it's time to start having these conversations and exploring ways that you you can leverage some of these tools to to be more efficient and effective in 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 your job so thank you gentlemen for your time and if you're just joining us for this episode scroll on down to the show notes there'll be links to episodes one and two and then if this is if you're listening to this sometime after the month of march you'll also have episode four linked in the show notes as well uh it's a totally binge worthy uh series here so thanks guys for your time thank you Rick. this is great Hey all Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Enrollify podcast. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. Our podcast network is growing by the month and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. But Enrollify is far more than just a podcast network. Enrollify is where higher ed comes to learn new marketing skills, discover new products and services, and find their next job. We're a growing learning community of 4,000 members and we'd love to welcome you into the fold. You can access our free blog articles, newsletters, e-courses, and more, or purchase our master course on how to market a university with Terry Flannery at enrollify.org. We look forward to meeting you soon and welcoming you into the community. Again, you can subscribe for free at enrollify.org.